Welcome to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. And now your host, Sonia Estrasoltani. Hi, welcome to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. I'm your host today, Sonia Estrasoltani. I'm the Editor-in-Chief at Rappaport and Jewelry Connoisseur. Um, and today I'm very excited because we have with us Ben Maclow, the president of the Maclow Gallery in New York. And the reason why I wanted Ben to come on this podcast to discuss um, education and estate jewelry is because the Maclow Gallery is doing a fantastic job at educating and furthering knowledge um, about estate jewelry. If you haven't registered to their newsletter, I would encourage you to do because they share beautiful pieces, but not just the beautiful pieces, but also the history, the context and um, in which they were created, as well as historical periods. So hi, Ben. How are you? I'm very well, Sonia. It's so nice to hear your voice again. Thank you for having me on the show. You're welcome. So before we get into um, the fantastic educational program you have for you, um, for your clients, but also for people, potential clients, I would like you to tell us a bit more about how the Maclow Gallery started. Sure. Um, my mother, Barbara, and my father and Lloyd were married in 1964. And when they got married, they were actually um, quite poor and uh, couldn't afford new furniture. They got married in the rabbi's study and um, uh, working class might be better than poor, but they, were, but they didn't have much. <laughs> and it got them actually um, thinking about what they could buy that wasn't new and what they could afford. And they started looking at the merchandise offering ads in the Saturday and Sunday New York Times. And they, you know they would go to the local diner and with a roll of dimes and call people uh, in the phone book uh, you know, who had listed that they had things for sale. And they'd go and they'd start looking at things that they could afford for themselves. And it got them appreciating the idea that maybe some of the things that weren't new were worth owning, which was a relatively radical concept in early 1960s America. Mm-hmm. You know, Fast forward a little bit. My mother was a school teacher and uh, was invited over for uh, a Friday night dinner at another teacher's home. And it turned out that this teacher's mother-in-law was a woman named Minna Rosenblatt. For fans of the Tiffany Lamp world, Minna was uh, one of the very first and the pioneering group of all entirely Jewish women from the greater New York area who rediscovered Tiffany, rediscovered Art Nouveau, um, and started to offer it to the general public in a very um, organic fashion. Uh, at the time, Minna was living in Brooklyn. She uh, kept her things in the basement and sold out of her house, but she also exhibited at antique shows. Uh, and it, strangely enough, she was exhibiting that very weekend at an antique show at the Old Madison Square Garden, which is now where uh, Worldwide Plaza is in New York City in the, in the, in the 40s on 9th Avenue. And uh, my parents were at, at this dinner with their friends, and they had this beautiful Tiffany chandelier over the table. And my mother and father had never seen anything like this before. And they thought it was just beautiful, and it was covered in flowers, and it was evocative. And my father said, well, where can we get one of these things? And he said, well, my mother sells them. And my dad said, great, how much would something like this cost? And the guy said, $500. And my father said, are you crazy? <laughs> $500 for $500 for a lamp? <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, fast forward 45 years, 50 years, actually, uh, 55 years now, and now somebody will say, $500,000 for a lamp? Are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> a Tiffany <Yeah>. lamp. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so numbers have changed, but the uh, the reaction is often the same. Anyway, 
my parents went the next uh, the next time that Minna was exhibiting. They bought a, a beautiful piece of Tiffany art glass for $35. She allowed them to pay for it in five weekly installments of $7, and it got them hooked. Uh, my mother had always been a collector. Um, as, a, as a little girl growing up in Brooklyn, she got really good at marbles. Um, so she could beat all the other boys at marbles and all the other girls too. And she could put together a collection of marbles, you know, those little glass beads with the different colors and the different decorations. And that was really why she played them. It wasn't so that she could just have marbles. It was that she wanted to see the decoration. And she would um, press autumn leaves between uh, the pages of books. And my father as well, um, even as a young person, always loved beautiful things. They just didn't know anything and they had no art history background. So they just sort of learned as they went along. Um, and that's, and, and so this was well before they were ever involved with jewelry. Um, and they started exhibiting themselves at antique shows and they were um, selling basically American art pottery. Have you ever heard of um, any of the makers like Rookwood or Van Briggle? No. Can you tell us a bit more about them? Yeah. So at the, I'm going to try not to be overly verbose, but this is a podcast. So basically at the end of the 19th century, when... Ben, and it's about education, so... <laughs> uh, so uh, allow me to educate you then. So at the end of the 19th century, so many people in Western Europe and in the United States were leaving their farming communities and moving to cities and making a wage for the first time, as opposed to working in the barter economy. And because of... Um, advances in um, unionization and labor laws, they also had time off that they'd never had before because it doesn't matter if it's Christmas Day on the farm, the, the horses need to be fed, the cows need to be milked, etc. But when you moved to the city and you were working in a factory job on Saturday, the factory was just closed. And so, so this combination of people making a wage, living in a place away from their families, or maybe even moving from another country to be in these cities, um, combined with uh, leisure time, started to make people look at their homes in a different way. And also technological advances made it possible to make beautiful objects of art for the home at a lower price. Mm. So, um, for instance, I don't know if you, um, if you know, but for the 1851 um, exhibition in London that Victoria's husband, the Albert, great ran, exhibition, the, yes, the yeah. Palace, the great exhibition of 1851, one of the things that was invent was introduced the first time there was the idea of electroplating, which is where you could take the original of a sculpture and using conductivity actually create a replica of it out of metal, and that made it possible to make a beautiful work of art and then to make it available to the mass public. And similar things were being done in pottery with molding as well, and um, a lot of and and things were being made in sort of a, a an industrial scale. And it started to fill people's homes. In the Art Nouveau period, which was sort of a reaction to some of this industrialization, people said, well, we can make things using some of these techniques, but they still have to look like they're handmade. And so mm -hmm. there was just this explosion of creativity in this period. Um, you'll see it in the jewelry world, mainly with silver. Um, the idea of having a silver service at home was unheard of for anybody except the wealthiest people until about 1860. And then you start to see the English and the Americans and the French to a lesser extent making silver that people could afford. And then all of a sudden, every, every middle-class home had to have a silver service. Um, and in ceramic, my parents really fell in love with the work of Rookwood and Van Briggle, which, was, which were both American pottery um, companies. Van Briggle um, was in this region, but uh, Rookwood was in Zanesville, Ohio, near Cincinnati. 
and um, they made things that were quite beautiful. And so my parents would go up Route 7 in Connecticut and on the weekend, and they'd buy these pieces for $3 and $5, and they'd come back to the city and sell them to the dealers who had stores for $7 and $10. And this was all while keeping their day jobs. And they started to think, wow, this is a great way to make a living. <laughs> and then they the big antique shows, and all they had was pottery for sale. And so they would sell probably... 80% of the, the pottery they were going to sell in the first four hours of a five-day-long show. And then for the rest of the time, my mother would be sitting there twiddling her thumbs. My father would be sitting there twiddling his thumbs. So my mother would walk around, and she, being a smart woman, noticed the people who sold jewelry tended to be busy the entire show. And she loved jewelry. So she said to my father, Lloyd, we have to start selling jewelry. And he refused. He said, Barbara, we're pottery dealers. That's what we do. And she said, that's ridiculous. We're dealers of beautiful things. We just happen to be selling pottery right now. We have to sell other things too. And so he finally relented. And you know, she got one of those little wooden um, you know, tabletop cases with the glass thing that you know, tilts up. But mm-hmm. everything she had, they had to be able to sell for $25 or less, which even in the mid-60s was a really difficult price to achieve. So my mother got very good at buying um, Art Nouveau and Victorian jewelry and silver. Uh, very good at um, Georgian guard rings and other things that could be had um, for a price. And that's how they got started in the jewelry business. And there were no books about about jewelry connoisseurship in the 1960s. And what books there were about Art Nouveau connoisseurship were all in French, and my parents didn't speak French. So they really learned by doing, which is, for anyone listening to this podcast, that is the best way to learn, is by you know, doing it, doing it and making mistakes and figuring it out. Is it how you learned yourself? How did you, did you always knew, did you always know that you were going to, to join the family business and how did you make your own education? Well, I was absolutely certain I was going to be starting first baseman for the New York Yankees. (laughs) (laughs) That hanging curve. Um, You know, I I actually really had no idea I was going to join the family business uh, after after a brief flirtation with a baseball career that ended when I was about 14, uh, I, I went through school. I was, I'm, I'm a very ardent ecologist, and I thought that I'm working for the betterment of uh, the human and natural ecosystems would be where my passion would lay. And um, it, it, after, after, after college, I realized that it was sort of hard to find a job doing those things. So mm-hmm. I went and taught elementary school for a few years, and um, then I sort of backed into the business by sort of by accident. My father was on a business trip, and the flu ran through the gallery, and my mother just called me up and said, I know you're doing some other things, but if you're not busy, could you just put on a suit and come into the store? Because otherwise, I can't open. There's just not enough of us. And she did, and I did. So, And after a week or so, I left, and I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Maybe I'll tr- give this a try. But I had no education at all. I never even took an art history class in college, much to my, I don't want to say my shame, but much to my chagrin because, you know, it's forced me to play a lot of catch up in my career. But I think it's okay because I feel like I can speak to people who want to buy things on a level that they understand and in a way that's not going to intimidate them because I'm learning all the time as well. So for me, education is not about something I have that I don't share. Education for me is about something I'm just figuring out that I want to hip you to. I want the other person as excited as I am. And so I'm learning, I mean, during, I mean, right now we're in this Corona lockdown and I've got two little kids at home, so I don't have as much free time as I would like, but I'm listening to wonderful jewelry podcasts as well and reading wonderful blogs. Um, Actually, the jewelry community, particularly the estate jewelry community, has really been turning out fantastic um, content during this period. So I'm learning every day as well. 
And that's very interesting. I also think like there's been such a, a burst of uh, of uh, webinars and uh, Instagram lives and fantastic. I mean, the, the virus is terrible and harrowing situation for, for the whole world. But in terms of uh, knowledge and, uh, and sharing knowledge, it's been uh, really such a, a f- beautiful time actually to to connect with people and and, and learn mm. so much together mm-hmm. but before this happened and um how do you how did you feel like um knowledge is so important before you can appreciate a piece of estate jewelry because some of them i guess it's a complete emotional decision when you see um a romantic um piece of victorian jewelry or you can see the floral pattern in art nouveau Something appeals to you in art, nouveau, in art deco, but how do you feel to educate, to share knowledge with a potential client, make the, the whole experience different? Yeah, I think that's a great question, uh, Sonia. And it's, it really speaks to a lot uh, to psychology. You know, the most primal human fear is to be murdered, but the mm-hmm. second most primal human fear is to be shamed and to be shamed publicly. So very often people just buy what everyone else has which of course the large jewelry brands are brilliant at letting you think you need another Alhambra necklace or another love bracelet, you know, and all these sort of iconic pieces that have, um, you know, that are guaranteed not to get you mocked by anybody and also, you know, have their own aesthetic value. Um, So when we come, when we have a client meeting with us, whether it's in person, on the internet, whatever, the first thing we have to figure out is how to put them at ease because it's very rare for a client to come to us and say, I'm a collector of such and such. I see that you have you know, that piece on your website. I'd like to have a deep, meaningful conversation with you about, about, about it because I'm, I'm educated enough that I really, really get excited having these conversations. I, you know, obviously in my you know, platonic world, I would love for those conversations to be happening every day, but, <laughs> usually, but, but usually that's not the case. Even with good clients, we're usually starting close to what I would call ground, you know, um, you know, not zero, but very close to the beginning of a conversation. And in a sales journey, because we are ultimately a business, figuring out where the customer is in that sales journey is the very first thing we have to do. Because if I start having a high level conversation with somebody who just wants to, who doesn't even know who Tiffany was, or doesn't know who Lalique was, or Cartier, then I'm just going to be alienating them immediately. So... My first thing is always, who is the person walking in the door? What is their goal in this conversation with me? Is their goal information? Is their goal to make a purchase? Is, you know, what, what can I do to help them realize what they're hoping to do here? And then I can tailor my educational conversation to that level. Because the more, you know, in a gallery like Maclow Gallery, where we don't have anything that's a multiple, where we don't sell diamond engagement rings by the boatload, it's just not what we're good at. The more you know, the better our stuff looks. The more educated you are, the more you've seen, the more you've handled, the more, oh my God, this place has amazing stuff. And actually, some of our very best clients, Sonia, are other merchants or other dealers because mm-hmm. they have that level of education and that level of confidence where they can look through our stock and say, this is great, this is great. Well, this I don't need, but the, you know, and they can start, you know, we might not always get together on price, but when it comes to you know, aesthetics, they already start at such a high level and education, they've already got such a high level that we can have those conversations. So some of my favorite people to do business with are members of the trade. Um, it's actually great fun for me because then I do get to have those conversations. And um, the clients who 
are open to the education are really showing themselves now because we've been sending out, as you said, our newsletters. And at the beginning of Corona, we were sending one out every day, Monday through Friday. And we've decided to ralentir, you know, to to slow it down to two days a week. Um, Although our Instagram is still a daily feed, we figured that the emails were starting to come a little too hot and heavy. But what's interesting is how many of our clients actually take the time to write us an email to comment on what we've sent. And you can really see the people who are um, doubling down on their education by who's responding and how they're responding. Some of them are responding with questions or, or saying, hey, I saw this on another website or in a book, and how does it compare? And that's exciting for us. That is very interesting. I mean, your glimpses of beauty, I have to say, they always brighten my, my day when I see them in my inbox. So. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. Feel free to <laughs> but, share them liberally. Yes, a bit, every single day. <laughs> what's, the, <laughs> what's interesting, as you said, that um, a lot of your clients are other um, dealers that have the the expertise, the appreciation of uh, of the, excu- the ex- unique, exquisite pieces you have in the gallery. But for clients, what you notice there's some areas, some periods, some styles that are more difficult to access and they, they need a bit more of your guidance. Yes, I do. And um, <laughs> we seem to specialize in eras that are hard to access. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, people live a much less formal way than we used to. And if any, if this quarantine does anything, it's going to, I think, accelerate that since we've all been sitting around in our pajamas for a month. Um, so jewelry that was created around a woman who is dressed formally is a lot harder for clients to um, to gain emotional access to. So um, a Victorian um, pair of gold earrings might be a very easy thing for a woman to understand and to love or a heart pendant, but um, a big diamond uh, and silver, a you know, silver top diamond uh, uh, entremblant floral spray is about as far away from the way most people are living now as you could imagine. So that becomes a very difficult thing to uh, to interest people with. Um, you know, the- and I'm just going to make the point even more um, valid by asking you to actually describe the this piece that you just mentioned. Yeah, sure. Well, um, one of the great pleasures uh, of having all of the masterful jewelers of Victorian England was making things that actually um, could be where the flower heads could be put on a little gold spring so that as a woman moved, the flower head looked like it was trembling in the breeze, like an actual flower. So they called that en tremblante or trembleuse. Um, and uh, it was uh, something that Queen Victoria loved. And as whatever Queen Victoria liked, obviously filtered its way down um, through the buying public. And so you'll see very frequently um, a, a, a brooch that will be somewhat asymmetrical with a stem and leaves and then either one or more than one flower um, blossom that is sitting away from the rest of the brooch and it has the coil that I mentioned on the back and it will move as Mm -hmm. the the wearer is moving. And this was very, very popular in what we call the high Victorian period of 1860 to 1900, or 1860 to 1880 and even through the late Victorian through 1900. Um, but it's not not something that's being done so much today. And are there other um, other more opaque uh, pieces of jewelry that that need more explanation as well when uh, when someone see, sees them? Yeah, sure. Well, probably the the ultimate version of that for what we sell is Art Nouveau, because on one level you've got Art Nouveau jewelry which is enameled and flowers and gold, and it's very easy to understand aesthetically, and so that part's no problem. 
but the really avant-garde au nouveau was very psychologically complex and very often was telling an allegorical story. And so all of these are things that you have to have a certain level of education to um, even understand what you're looking at, to have the vocabulary to talk about it. It's sort of like um, if you're looking at Renaissance portraiture, the, the color of the clothing the person was wearing, the types of clothing the person's wearing was denoting not just their social status, but also different states of mind. And I'm no expert in Renaissance portraiture, but it's something that I think applies here as well, that um, for instance, Lalique, we have a beautiful uh, necklace right now by Lalique of two dragonflies. Um, and what is unclear to anybody unless they really know is that the two dragonflies are actually mating. Um, and they're, they're, they're it's sort of in a love embrace, <laughs> which is... As- <laughs> it's a very interesting thing for a woman to be wearing around her neck, and it's quite provocative. But it's only provocative to the person who knows what he or she is looking at. Uh, and so there are things like that that make Art Nouveau very, very satisfying for collectors and somewhat inscrutable to new people. Mm. And do you think, do, how do you see, I mean, I, I guess you must have had this conversation with your parents as well, is do you see um, the public being more interested and more educated in estate jewelry and antique jewelry or actually the maybe the previous generation of uh, when your parents started had more curiosity what do you what do you see i think that the um the explosion of interest in my parents generation and in the baby boomer generation in collecting in general whatever it was whether it was cars or jewelry, or paintings, or furniture, or ceramics, was unprecedented in human history. And, and the, the group and the, the generation of people who became dealers in my parents and the, and the generation right after them um, didn't realize, because it was their contemporaries, that it was an unusual thing that was happening. So we also had just an explosion of the upper middle class and the middle class, you know, which is something that since you know, 20 years has been evaporating. So there are fewer people collecting everything now. Even contemporary art has fewer collectors than it did 20 years ago, which is, which is a little known fact. There's, that's why there's so many galleries that are going out of business right now is because they had a very thin collector base to begin with. Um, so there's that. But on the same side, the explosion of information has made it possible for people to be much more excited about collecting and also to participate, even if they don't have the money, by by coming to galleries like ours, by looking at our website, by reading, by listening to my videos, by uh, going on the various um, sites and watching, uh, you know, reading blogs, etc. So there's a lot of people, I think, who are collectors in their heart, but might not have the uh, financial capacity to do so. And I actually see an enormous amount of interest in unusual things, uh, not just in the typical stuff. And it seems that the online community, if you will, is more interested in things that they can't expect to find between the pages of a fancy magazine. That's very interesting. That's yeah. very interesting. And what about the, the people, the clients of yours that are not um, other dealers? Who, who are there? And uh, I, I know it's difficult to put them in a, in a group, but what, what do you see? What was the most surprising type of client that you that goes through the the door of the macro gallery well we we um when we moved the gallery um off of our ancestral home on madison avenue to this greatly expanded premises on the corner of park avenue and 57th street was only a quarter of a mile away but it changed our business quite profoundly um we have many many more people walking through the door at least we did until march 13th 
many more people walking through the door than we had um, on Madison Avenue, which was surprising to us. And so the collect the people we have buying from us really run the gamut. We have clients who are in their 20s who are interested in buying something beautiful. It's usually a self-purchasing woman in her 20s or 30s. Um, and then all the way up to our, you know, uh, our clients who have been with us for many years. And because our jewelry collection starts around 1800 and goes all the way through to the present day, we get a lot of different people interested in different things. And, you know, for me, the um, the Rosetta, not Rosetta Stone, that's the wrong term. Uh, the ultimate great client is the self-purchasing woman. I just love when a woman who makes her own money comes in, enjoys the process of shopping for her own things, picks it and pays for it. Nothing against the men listening, but it's really sexy when a woman can buy herself jewelry. It's traditionally, <laughs> you know, tra- yeah, it is. It's funny, but traditionally, it's always been something that was a gift given by a man to a woman who received it. And she might not even have anything to say about what was given to her, much less the decision making and the paying power. And that's really started to shift. And uh, for me, that's very exciting because ultimately the person who's using the jewelry should be the one who's most invested in what piece of jewelry she's getting. And so I think, I think, I think as we have women more and more enfranchised in the workplace and making more and more money, we're going to see that um, more and more, which for me is going to be just fabulous because it takes you one step closer um, to the conversation that you and I started to talk about before of education. When a man comes in looking for a gift for his wife, it's a very different conversation from if they're there together, which is still different to if she's there by herself to purchase for herself. And I find that the conversations with women purchasing for themselves, much more satisfying, much deeper. They ask much better questions that are much more open-ended um, rather than just like the guy saying like, am I, is she going to like this? <laughs> you know, like, if I give her this, am I going to get laid? I hate to sound crap, but let's be honest. Um, you know, and, uh, and, you know, it gets back to that same thing I said before, you know, the, the greatest, the second greatest fear is of uh, public shaming. And even me, I mean, I'm 49 years old. I, I've bought tens of thousands of pieces of jewelry in my life. But when it comes time to get something for my wife, Hillary, I don't like to surprise her with things because I, I like her to be part of the process. Because if I get her something that she doesn't like, then she feels obligated to tell me she likes it. And then she feels obligated to wear it. And, you know, all this nonsense, you know, only to say to me very politely six months later, you know, sweetheart, there's something in the galleries collection that I think I like better than this. Do you mind if I trade? You know, we, <laughs> yeah, exactly. we stopped doing that about, I don't know, eight or nine years ago. We're much happier now. Uh, you know, so I think in the, in the gallery that had, she had a, a coup de coeur at Prushful. I'm sorry, would you say that again? What was the latest piece that um, Hillary had a crush for in the, in the oh, gallery? Yeah. Um, let's see, what was the latest piece she had a crush for? Oh, let me think about that for a second. Oh, uh-huh. we bought a beautiful little um, ring by René Lalique, actually of two dragonflies, but it was very unusual. It was a, it was a ring from the, towards the end of their jewelry product, of his jewelry creations, because it was done in platinum with, with, a, with a baguette cut diamond. Very unusual. And, and I bought it and she just loved it. And she put it on. She goes, ooh, that might need to be mine. And then I showed her what I paid for it. She says, ooh, that might need to be somebody else's. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, the best part about, about, uh, about working in the gallery that she does and, you know, running the business with me is that she gets to uh, take lots of pieces home, which is nice. But she also gets to wear them and see if they're really right for her. And that's also been part of the education process for me. 
is understanding that um, I have to be willing to be flexible with my clients as their tastes evolve. So somebody might buy something from me six months ago, and maybe they'll love it forever, but maybe they're going to come back in six months and say, you know, I think I want to get something else. Can you work with me on that? And here's mm-hmm. why. Um, and it, and I'm always happy to do that with clients. I don't want it to be a lending library because I will go out of business. But you know, when people's tastes change, I want them to know that we're going to be there to help them. You know, to choose something that's going to delight them. That is, that is great. That is really great. Yeah. So we wrap up this this conversation, which I think has been extremely for me an, an education for sure. Oh, I had a question actually about these ring with the dragonflies that Hilary liked. Were they behaving or they were also a little <laughs> bit? <laughs> no. these, these, it appeared that they were behaving. The, the heads <laughs> of the dragonflies were sort of stylized. And if you, if you could imagine, they were coming up from either side of the shank and their heads were meeting with a bag, rather sizable baguette diamond right in the middle. Sort of, you know, it's interesting. There's this idea of polarity of the male and female that was, mm-hmm. again, for the cognoscenti, part of what Arnouveau was talking about. So you will very often see in pieces by Lalique identical insects, one right and one left, around a central stone. Um, it's not usually a valuable stone. It could be a citrine or an aquamarine or an opal. But it, I think I, I have to go back to my books and read if, if this is what he was intending. But I'm assuming that it had to do with polarity and the male and female energy in the act of union, because he mm. did it enough that it would make sense to me that that's the case. And again, it becomes something that makes it really fun when you own something and you look at it on your finger or you look at it and you know on your on your jacket and you know that you've got a little a little private joke with with the creator. That's great. So um, I would like you to tell us if um, to to recommend um, a book that you think is a is a good book to start an education in um, in jewelry history. And this is oh, wow. Well, if you're really serious, Understanding Jewelry by um, Daniela Massetti and, oh God, what's the man's David name? Bennett. Yes, David Bennett. That book's incredible. Yeah. I mean, that, that book is, the, is, it's like a Bible. You just keep going back to it over and over and over again. Um, and uh, that book is fabulous. I will say that um, if you, if you want to, if, if you, before to learn about jewelry itself, if you want to learn about what it means to create and run a generational jewelry business. The new biography of the Cartier family by Francesca Cartier-Briquel is a must read. It's about 500 pages long, but it reads almost like a romance novel. It's fabulous. And it really, and you get to see how the Cartier family started from nothing and how tenuous their success was, how unsure it was for many, many years. And how through not just hard work, but very, um, very, very uh, focused social climbing, <laughs> they developed the right clientele. And it's, it's fascinating. And I, I recommend it because too often, especially in, in, you know, in the diamond part of our, our industry, in the gemstone part of industry, it's all about the four C's. It's all about the price. It's all about the this and the that. And it, all of the romance and the human element of it can get lost. Um, I think particularly now we need that human element and reading the history of an important house like Cartier gives you a sense that it wasn't just an unbroken line. They almost went out of business many times and how they became successful and how this whole thing actually happened gives us a sense that the jewelry industry is ultimately an industry of family businesses that have generational challenges, but also have fabulous um, gifts 
because they're family businesses. So those would be my two book, books to recommend. That's great. Actually, um, Francesca is our next guest on the podcast. Oh. <laughs> Shout out to Francesca. The recommendation could be the whole introduction. It's, it's, I also read the book within, I think, two or three days. Mm-hmm. And, and I think also something very important, I guess, in our industry, one of the advice that the, the patriarch of the family um, gave to his son, and that goes down to the three sons and, and um the Alfred, uh, Louis, and um, and Pierre is be kind. I think there's uh, mm. there's something that I really I really liked, and you see the the strong family values and uh, and kindness to to employees and craftsmen throughout throughout the book. I, I like this aspect as well of uh, of the story. I agree with you, it, and it's funny because the first time I ever walked into the Cartier Boutique on Fifty Second Street and Fifth Avenue, they were not kind. <laughs> <laughs> of course, by then it was no longer owned by the family. Uh, but, That's uh, good. Just concentrate on estate jury up to 1974. When <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you know, that's 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 the thing. You know, we sell we sell pleasure. What we sell is happiness and pleasure. And if we aren't kind to our clients and to our employees, what's the point? You know, it's we don't. Nobody needs what we sell. <laughs> we sell we sell happiness. So um, I agree with you. And I think that is maybe the most important point to take out of the whole book. I like the, we sell happiness as a, <laughs> as a concluding, concluding line for this podcast. Ben, thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure, Sonia. I hope we get to talk again soon. Me too. It's been such a pleasure. And um, we will link um, this podcast to, um, to the Maclerlet Gallery. So our, audience can find out more if they haven't already registered to you to your newsletter and the, the website also has tons of really really interesting educational um, information as you mentioned videos but also uh, notes about the the highlights of the gallery and uh, and the different uh, and especially on Art Nouveau as you said and um, that's that's really a, an amazing source of knowledge so thank you so much Ben I wish you well and hopefully we'll oh. soon be out of the this virus crisis and everybody can come back to, to visit your gallery in New York. You, you will be hopefully the first one I get to invite. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank I wish you a good day, Ben. Merci, au revoir. And we, au revoir. <laughs> Thanks for joining us at the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. If you enjoyed this and would like more top quality jewelry content, check out the Jewelry Connoisseur blog at jewelryconnoisseur.net. 